0: Hi and welcome to Book for Lunch, interviews with the world's leading business book authors and thinkers. I'm Susie Daphnis of the Australian Business Women's Network. My guest today is Oren Claff, author of Pitch Anything. In this interview, we look at why being needy is a surefire way to lose a deal. How to avoid being messed around waiting for people to get back to you why you should always be willing to walk out of a meeting, and what comedian Jerry Seinfeld knows about attention that you should know too. This interview was recorded as part of the Book for Lunch webinar series. Hi and welcome to Book for Lunch, brought to you by the Australian Business Women's Network. I'm Susie Daphnis. Book for lunch are free webinars with the world's leading business book authors and thinkers. And if you've ever sat across from the person who can secure a great deal for you and instead of listening rapidly, he or she is fiddling with his pen and you know this is all going terribly wrong, then you're really going to enjoy today's webinar. My guest is Oren Claff, author of Pitch Anything. I want to say a few words about the book before um, we start the interview. The title is Pitch Anything, an innovative method for presenting, persuading and winning the deal. And we introduced a scenario just a moment ago of you sitting across from someone who can help you secure a deal and instead of listening, they may be fiddling with their pen or maybe even telling you very openly that their time is being wasted. You feel like the opportunity might be slipping away and you feel anything but your normal powerful self. What our guest today has found is that by focusing on how the brain works and what we can do to create desire in the other party through some really interesting techniques we're going to talk about today, Oren teaches us how to set the frame for your argument, control the agenda to your advantage, know when to pull back and when to push forward and get the deal over the line. So this is a book that I recommend be studied. I read it all the way through, I've got post notes and scribbles and notes, but it's one that has so much good information that I highly recommend you pick up a copy and you study it because it's that amazing. Our guest today, as I mentioned, is Aaron Claff. His title is Director of Capital Markets for the Investment Bank Intersection Capital, where he raises tens of millions of dollars from investors and institutions. And while you may never have to raise that much money, the principles are fundamentally the same. The book is beautifully written, and he's masterful in the art of the pitch. In fact, I'm kind of scared about what I might end up buying by the end of this webinar <laughs> if we let him free. So uh, please um, help me welcome Aaron Claff. Aaron, do we have you there?
1: Yep. I am here. What a nice introduction. I hope I can be as nice to you as you are to me, but it doesn't usually happen that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, great. I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind staying nice and close to that microphone, um, and I'm going to go ahead and ask you first, Firstly, congratulate you on the book, and Mention that in the opening chapter, you explained that nine times out of ten, despite the preparation we may have done, we fail to be convincing, and our messages actually have a very low chance of getting through. Tell us why that is.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think before I dive into giving you guys the heart of the information, it would help if I um, provided some context so people know where I'm coming from, how I know this stuff, okay? Uh, so just in two minutes or less, I'm an investment banker and for the last 10 or 12 years, I wake up every day and I have to head to some boardroom and pitch some committee or some investors or some group or some venture capital firm deal. Okay? And so I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times and sometimes it works and sometimes It doesn't, and when it doesn't work, it's very painful. I do it every single day, nearly, and and for many years, the same thing that would work one day wouldn't work another, and that became so frustrating because for us in investment banking, it can take months to get a meeting, you know, or weeks, and cost tens of thousands of dollars. We fly around in a jet; it's seventy-two hundred dollars an hour to go somewhere. So even if we just go three hours away and three hours back, that can be, be $40,000 to get to a meeting with that. And so you have an hour meeting and you're forty or $50,000 to get there and it goes wrong, it's incredibly painful. And so um, over time I became interested and I hired a cognitive psychologist and I sat down with him and i say sometimes I go in and I say these things and they work incredibly well, right? Other times I go into a room and I say these things and they don't work at all, right? And over time, the psychologist shared with me what is happening at the fundamental human level in the brain of the people that we're pitching to, see? Um, so now that you understand a little bit about the challenge that I face, here is what I was instructed um, by the, you know, these guys who study the brain. And these are guys from, you know, you hear it all the time, these are Harvard, Columbia, University of California, San Diego. These are brain researchers. And he said, what happens is the brain is actually three brains, and this is a fundamental thing that you don't understand, right, because you're just kind of pitching or giving your information to the mind of the other person. And you think that they think like you do. How could they not? We're all humans. We all have this brain. So you don't understand the architecture of the human mind. You don't have to get a degree in you know in classical brain physiology for to explain it to you. And, then, and I'll give it to you guys here. What I was told and have since you know looked into and and and, and um, this makes sense and works. So there's three major parts to the brain. There's the neocortex, which we've all heard of. You guys, we're not going to spend long on that. Okay, but it's incredibly important. Oh, you've got an image up here. So the neocortex, that is the last part of the brain to develop. It's smart, linguistic, intellectual, problem-solving, and completely devoid of emotion. It does math and language and physics and problem-solving and all the hard stuff. So when you wake up in the morning and decide what coffee you're going to make, or you're going to eat have breakfast, and how you're going to get to work and what radio station you're going to listen to, what you're going to do when you get to work and what time you're going to go home and when you go to the gym. It's all geocortex stuff, right? Below that sits the midbrain, and the midbrain understands social situations. And this was the second-to-last, the middle part of the brain to develop across millions of years. And so it understands what a policeman is and what a mother is and what a teacher is and what an underling is. And where the janitor who's also a valid human being, and where they the social structure of our lives, all right, and even you'll see two-year-olds or three-year-olds who know nothing about calculus or language or Latin or anything like that, know very broad social uh, structures, okay, and so you can see this is stuff that, um, that is built, but most importantly, what I want to talk about here is crocodile brain, right? the crocodile brain keeps you alive. All right? It filters all information. It is the input uh, part of the brain in which whenever you walk into a boardroom and begin to talk to someone or meet someone on a sales call or or enter a phone call like this, or any human interaction begins with filtering by the crocodile brain. The job of the crocodile brain is to keep you alive. Okay? And this is incredibly important, um, you know, obviously. And, and so, um, what it reacts to is things that are uh, dangerous, right? So it looks for things that are dangerous or things that are going to take resources away from from um, its job of running your body, right? So this this crocodile brain controls your whole neurological system, and I want to just give you a quick example, and then we're going to apply this to the real world. Because right, remember, I'm not a brain researcher. I just have to use this stuff to understand why pitches do and don't work. I'm going to get there in just a second. But if you're walking through the backyard and you see a stick, okay, or let's just say a snake, you see what looks like a snake, right, and you, you become shocked and scared, and you jump back and you shake and you're fearful, and this has happened to all of us, right, your neocortex can very quickly figure out that it's a stick, as I said before, Right? but you don't stop shaking and quivering and and feeling upset for a few minutes right so once the neocortex has figured out something right it's still the crocodile brain that's controlling your your neurological system telling you to be afraid and on high alert right? so this is the really the in some way the ceo of the mind it's what makes the first decision about you right so if you begin communicating, and now we're going to be in the heart of it. If you begin communicating to another human in a way that the crocodile brain doesn't like or is afraid of, you won't get anywhere. Okay? And so everything that the crocodile brain accepts happens in, in four or five ways. Right? All Before we before human beings.
0: Oren, before we uh, go into the examples, let me go ahead and ask you another couple of questions because it will all unfold as it does in the book uh, and make a whole lot more sense to people as we look at the next step. So let's go ahead, uh, uh, now that we've got that context about the brain and, and as you said, it underpins the work that's in the book, I want to introduce people to a couple of terms um, and it will all start uh, to fit in. But I, I do want to go ahead and move on to the word frames because the word frames is used a lot throughout the book. And the way that you describe frames, and some people may have, the reference of the word frame from neurolinguistic programming and other things, but you describe frames as the mental structures that shape the way we see the world and put relationships in context. So again, very briefly, because we've got more questions that feed back to this, tell us about the role that frames play.
1: For sure. Okay, so um, if you think about you know, and and where frames come into play is when you can get past the crocodile brain without being afraid of you, right? Now, you're kind of into that social part of the brain where framing is incredibly important. When people come together, when any two people come together for a business or social interaction, they see the world through a frame, right? A frame combines your, it's your perspective, it's your morals, it is, how much money you want to make, what you are willing to trade in exchange for value. A frame is just the way you look at a business transaction, the lens in which you see the transaction or the world, right? And so everybody comes to a social interaction or a business exchange with their own frame, with their own perspective. What's interesting is that no two frames can exist in the same place at the same time. Like frames crash into each other. So if my frame, right, if my frame, for example, is that you, um, the, um, the value of what I'm selling is very high, right, and your frame is that the value of what I'm selling is very low, okay, those frames cannot coexist. They smash into each other, and one frame will absorb the other, right, because you guys can't sit around in a meeting for an hour with one person, one person thinking there's value, and the other person thinking there isn't. So frames crash together, and the strongest frame absorbs the weakest frame. So the person with the dominant or best frame will have the um, what we call frame control, or will have attention of the room or the audience or the people in the room. So uh, a very simple way to think about frame control, right? Is if people are reacting to you, people are reacting to you. You have frame control. They're looking at the social interaction or the business interaction through your lens and your perspective. If you are reacting to other people, okay, they have frame control, and they, they um, you are reacting to their view of the situation. So, for example, you're in a meeting, right? And when when um, the, say we're pitching an investor, the investor stands up, you stand up. The investor decides to take a text, you sit there patiently. When he makes a bad joke, you chuckle and laugh. Okay, you're in his frame. You're reacting to the things he's doing, he's not reacting to you. He has the attention and he has frame control. So um, I think, um, maybe we can go into specific examples so people can see how how powerful frames are um, and how they're used. um, I can either give you an example or you can ask a question, you know, just from your own business well, experience or we can, we can take any questions.
0: Okay, maybe, um, well let's see if this next question feeds into an example that's really obvious um, for you. While I'm going, um, just setting that up, would you have a quick look at the chat box for me? Um, I've just shot you a message and I'll uh, go ahead and get it set up. So one of the things that I doubt any of us does is go into a meeting or a pitch wanting to appear in any way needy or desperate, because no one, I imagine, would think that that would work to our advantage. And yet uh, what you tell us is that quite often um, the clues that we're giving the other person is just that, that we are needy and desperate.
1: Right. So... Um, so now you see it all tied together, right? So what we found is any time that you enter a, uh, a business situation or a pitch, you're trying to sell something or pitch a deal, okay, and you're needy, all right? Whenever you're needy, you come in with a um, low status, right, the needy frame, and it really weakens the deal. Um, and it just ties back into um, people are afraid. People are physiologically afraid of you when you're needy, okay? And it ties back to, uh, um, in the, you know, when, when mankind first started interacting with each other, there were not enough resources to go around. This is incredibly important. So when somebody needed something from you, that was life-threatening, okay? So whenever you're needy, it creates fear, physiological fear in the mind of the other person. All right, so um, all of my material is about framing your deal, right, as that it, you know, you're not needy, that the deal has your your idea, and your deal has momentum. People are buying your products. People are investing in your beats deal. People are buying into your ideas. Okay, you're not needy at all, and what you are doing is you are um, you're, um you're qualifying them to either buy your product or invest in your deal or become involved with your ideas. You're not pitching to them, you're letting them know that what you have and see if they're qualified to work with you or invest in your deal, okay? So being needy is something that destroys the state of neediness is where deals go to die, right? If you're needy in any community neediness in any way, it is incredibly harmful for a deal. I think if we move on to your other questions, you'll see what, um, you know, what the antidote to neediness is and how you avoid having it in any way.
0: Yeah, we're going to come back to neediness before the end of this session. Give us an example of something we might say, passing without thinking, that sort of gives us a way that we're kind of needy.
1: Sure. Here's a perfect example. So so many people kind of pitch me, right, and they say, thank you so much for letting us come to see you. We're very excited about showing you our product, right? And we'll do anything we can to a customer, maybe the happiest customer, right? And um, um, we will uh, show you, right, how good of a seller we can be and I think if you just make the decision to buy our product over the other guys, you'll be very happy and we'll be happy ourselves.
0: I'm squirming in my seat, and I know what's coming up. <laughs> okay. So, Very so these
1: kinds of comments are incredibly unhelpful. They communicate desperation and neediness. Even, so even if they're coming from a place of goodwill, they're completely useless. Okay? Now, there's worse things that people say. There's worse things that people say, things like... Um, um, so, we really need your business and we're willing to work with you on price, okay? Mm-hmm. That may be true, but it's completely destructive. Nobody wants to work with somebody who's needy. all right? So, um, I, th- I think those are good examples of things that we've, we hear said every day. Ab- now, absolutely. And we're going to
0: – sorry, go ahead. Go
1: right. ahead. Um, so, i was going to say because if I'm probably thinking now, well, those seem like fairly natural things to say. Hey, we'd like to do business with you. We're happy that you invited us in to pitch it, and we hope you will become a customer. What the hell is wrong with that, right? Well, everything, right? Because it's needy, but we can touch quickly on, um, and it, it creates fear. It, um, it does all these things, and it it offends the crocodile brain. It communicates the crocodile brain, right, that things are going to be slow, and they're going to be painful and it can take lots of resources to work with these people, right? So by contrast, we say things like, I'm glad I could find the time to work with you today, all right? I'm very busy, we have other meetings, we have about an hour to spend with you. Twenty minutes of those, we're going to describe the product or pitch the details or tell you about an idea. Then we can spend a little bit of time We can spend a little bit of time uh, learning about you guys and have a couple questions and answers, and then we have to go, okay? That communicates we are busy, the train is leaving the station, you've got to decide if you're going to be on it, all right? This is our meeting, it's on our agenda, we say when it starts, we say when it stops, we don't need you, we are spending some time with you to see if we're a fit together, all right? very strong frame, okay, so if you say the needy frame is one perspective, we need your business, right, and this is the um, this is the frame of strength, which is um, we are considering you to be a customer, right, so I mean, I just want to pause on that, it's a big deal to take a customer, okay, it's a big deal to take on an investor, it's a big deal to take on a partner. Right? Because those people will will, consume your time and your energy and your resources. You don't want a bad customer. So if a guy says, you know, this all sounds interesting, don't bother pitching me. I'm going to buy your copiers. Right? Go down to accounting and go get a check. You have to say, stop. Not so fast. It's a big deal taking on a customer. I need to know something about you. Tell me what kind of customer you are. Have you ever bought this stuff before? and how the you behave. okay? So, so um, it's very important to let people know that we're not just doing business with them at their whim, okay? They have to earn their way to become our customer or our investor or our partner.
0: Very good and I know that when I was reading uh, those chapters I had to catch the fear that I was having around being so bold as to say look I only have 10 minutes and to really roll reversing, reversing the roles um, but there's more. I want to talk about relationships versus data, because when we do a pitch, we often think that our, you know, 20 PowerPoint slides or our data or our bar graphs are really important, but instead you look at the story and the relationship ahead of the data. Tell us about that.
1: So many times we're giving a pitch, and let's just say it's on a semiconductor company, okay? So... The CEO or myself will begin the pitch, and we'll say something technical. And an analyst from their side, an analyst from their side, will jump in and say, "You know, we have bought the same kind of semiconductor manufacturing equipment that you use, and we don't believe your tolerances. Your semiconductor can do the throughput that you say it can. And we'd like to see some evidence, and proof, and data, and understand." How you arrive at these numbers. Okay, so if this is if this is the pitch, we say, guys, we're here together for an hour. We're not going to dive through data. That's probably a three hour exercise. Okay, we would not be here in this room invited by your firm to look at investing in us if these basics were not inviolate truths. Okay? Now I certainly agree we are going to have the analysts get together in a different room and go through the data right and if you guys blow out if you guys blow out of the deal because the data is inaccurate or our semiconductors don't do what we say, we have no problem with that. but right here at this table where we're finding out if we can even work together, we are not going to spend time um, um, grinding through data and numbers and analytics. We don't know if we, we even like you. Okay, the relationship hasn't. You have not even said, "Orange, we love you." We'd like to do a deal with you, right? And how can we? How can we advance to grinding through the data and to establish a relationship and establish the basic deal terms? Okay, are acceptable, right? So things have to happen here on a pace, and the We commit to you. The things we've said here are true, all right? And when the time is right, we'll pull out the big black binder, and your analyst and our analyst will look through it, right, and we'll validate that the stuff we have is real and true. But the time we have here today for one hour, okay, we've got to find out if these basic deal terms are work for you and us, and we've got to learn what kind of investor you are. And maybe that's a good starting point. Are you the kind of guys that only grind through numbers and don't value the strength of a team? Tell us about yourself. Okay, so I have done this hundreds of times. And every time uh, people, people understand that that's, that that's a working model, right, that it's relationships and then it's deal terms and then it's grinding through analytical questions.
0: Very good. I want to talk about old style selling versus new style selling, but we are getting a couple of people who are having a little bit of trouble hearing. And Aaron, I'm thinking mm. that it may be better to just pause the conversation and switch you back to your laptop sound. What do you think?
1: Okay, I will try that. Um,
0: so go, just under audio, if you choose mic and speakers, it should take just I will a moment.
1: Right. Okay. Oh, sure.
0: Okay. Okay, Susie, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually think that sounds a whole lot better. I hope everyone can hear uh, better now. Thank you for doing well,
1: that. Well, I'm going to call AT&T up and tell them they're a bunch of bastards for, uh, <laughs> <having> a bad <laughs> phone system. <okay?
0: laughs> All right. Let, let's go ahead. I want to talk about old-style selling, and uh, many of us have probably been to sales courses where they screen the movie *Glengarry Glen Ross* with Alec Baldwin, and, and you know the idea has been uh, always be closing, which we'll see on the slide as soon as that changes over. You have a different calling, and yours is always believing. Tell us about that.
1: So. You know, there's a lot of stuff behind this, but fundamentally, okay, fundamentally, we want as humans that which we cannot have, okay? So, um, you know, that's one nice way to think about this, all right? But for me, what is incredibly important is to create wanting in the other person. Nobody buys anything that they, you know, um, that they need, right? Right. Uh, uh, you know, they buy what they want. You got the wife or the husband <laughs> that you got, not because you did some kind of um, you know pros and cons or decision matrix, but you hopefully you bought the car right that you really wanted, independent of what you're. Uh, many times, right, my friends will say, "Hey, this is the perfect car for me. This is the pricing. I've been to the decision matrix. The, you know, it's either the Audi, the BMW, or the Mercedes." And then they come home that afternoon with a Ford pickup truck. And I go, what the hell happened? And they go, I don't know. I just wanted it. All right? And so when you can create wanting in someone, when you can create wanting, right, then um, there's no closing, right? You create the wanting and you say, I'm leaving. Okay? Or our time is up together. All right? Um, then, then you don't really need closes In my business, we have no clothes. So maybe, maybe, Susie, this is a good time then to tie it all together in the grand architecture of the pitch. Do you have four or five minutes set aside to hear that, so you can see all these pieces come together?
0: I do. I, let me tell you what I've got yet to cover. And you tell me if you want to do it now in a minute. I want to talk about alpha and beta. I then want to talk about the big idea and the three uh, parts to the formula, and then desire and tension. So do you want to do it now or do you want to come back to it?
1: No, let's, let's talk about alpha and beta. That's incredibly important, okay? Okay,
0: great. So just to give people a sense, you know, they may recognize a situation where they go in, chests are puffed, but something about the environment and the situation just flattens you and drops you down a few notches. What's happened to us in those instances, Oren? So,
1: in social interactions, we always discover that there's an alpha and a beta, and it's pretty self-descriptive, right? The alpha is controlling the social situation. It's people that, um, um, it's the person people are looking up to as the high status individual, right? The beta are the supplicants. People who are, if I'm the alpha, people are laughing at my jokes. When I say the meeting starts, people quiet down, right? When I say we're going to take a break, people take a break. When I say this is important, they perk up and, and listen. When I say you don't have to pay too much attention to this, they, they follow those instructions. The alpha has frame control, right? And the beta has to, um, in essence, obey the, um, you know, the wants of the alpha. So what we've discovered is these things called beta traps. So you walk into somebody else's office, on time, ready to give your presentation, and they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones is going to be another 15 minutes. He's on a call. Really? Okay, I'm here on time, as we agreed, travel to your office, all right? I'm not taking the beta position, which is to sit down and read a six-month-old Sports Illustrated or Cosmopolitan, right, and wait for you to call me. That's the beta position. Right? So for yourself to preserve your own mental view of yourself as the alpha, you want to say something like, you know, I'm here on time, as we've agreed. It doesn't seem like there's an emergency, right? Why don't you tell Mr. Jones we're ready to get started, okay? And if he wants to reschedule, he can come to my office for the next meeting. All right, now listen, I know you're afraid to say that, right? Because you're afraid they're going to say, well, dust off, right? We're buying from you. You're not buying from us. We tell you what to do. You don't tell us. But I can assure you when you take the alpha position, right, and they go to Mr. Jones, they say, Mr. Jones, the the salesperson says that they're going to leave unless you take this meeting. That puts tremendous pressure on him. You have just gained frame control because he has to react to you, all right? The alpha position is um, where you are uh, strong. You have frame control and people are reacting to you. The beta position is not where you want to be. And there's beta traps everywhere. You've got to keep an eye out for them. And let's wrap up here on beta. But when you go to somebody's office and they tell you to wait even though you're on time, all right, that's a beta trap. and You don't allow it. When you, go into, when you go to meet someone and they leave you stewing in the conference room for the other team to kind of assemble themselves, you don't put up with it, all right? That's a beta trap. okay? When somebody tells you, hey, you know, we're definitely going to buy this product, but I need to see a white paper or another analyst report, or you need to generate me a quote, here's a great one, okay? I don't quote anything. I'm happy to give you a contract if you agree to buy When people say, hey, why don't you send over a quote, right? That's a beta trap. I don't do that. What's so confusing? There's two numbers in the things you buy from me. How much you pay now, right? And how much you pay every month for the next six months. That cannot possibly confuse you. Let's agree to it. You tell me you're going to buy it, and I'll send you the contract which you can sign. What am I going to send over a proposal for, all right? Proposal is a beta trap, all right?
0: At Some of you point, listening may think, well, you can four, speak like can
1: that. To buy from you. So, so these, are, these are the distinctions between alpha and beta.
0: One of the things that those listening may wonder is, like, well, that's okay for you, Oren, you can speak to someone like that, but I don't know uh, how comfortable I would be in that. You also, in your book, talk about humor and lightheartedness, and it's not about beating the other person up, Right.
1: Oh, yeah, so so this is a great point because I sound like I have so much bravado coming across (laughs) the line here, right? And I sound like if you blink at me the right way, I might come across the desk, grab your lapel, and shake you. And it happens sometimes when I get really mad. But for the most part, you know, 19 out of 20 people say I should be a comedian on Sunset Boulevard, right? Because I say it with a smile, right? And I say it with mirth, and I say it, these things in a social and fun way. And I'll give you an example, all right? Um, I'm I'm only yelling now because I want people to get the gravitas of this. But I'll give you a perfect example. So we had a venture firm um, uh, come in for a company that I represent and submit, you know, get ready to submit a $15 million offer of investing. And it was kind of around the holidays, right? for them to submit an offer, we need them to do a term sheet. So so the woman says to me, the most incredibly smart, buttoned-up, powerful woman that I ever met in American venture capital, and she says to me, you know, Oren, we're moving forward, but it's going to take us about two weeks to put together a term sheet, which from our side is completely unacceptable. So I say, Nancy, Listen, I want you to know I do pro bono work for venture funds—ones that struggle and have have trouble meeting their deadlines—and and and really, um, when it's hard for them to put together a term sheet within two weeks, that's when the association asks me to do the pro bono work and come in and help. And I'd be glad to take you on as a pro bono client and get you guys the help you need to do this kind of thing, right? And so that can come off as incredibly offensive or funny, and it just depends on the delivery. And she went stone-faced for about two seconds and then broke out in incredible laughter because the thought of, of, uh, first of all, a woman like this, so powerful and a firm, so high up in the food chain, needing pro bono work, is comedic, right? And it went to um, break up the tension and she said, you're right two weeks is an incredibly inappropriate amount of time, we'll get it done in a couple days. Right? So, so not falling into a beta trap of we're going to take a couple weeks to give you a written term sheet um, um, and then you, you know, done in a social way with fun and a smile and it's incredibly powerful. Right? Mm. And that you can see is frame control because when she says they have all the decision making power, it's their money. They can do it in three weeks or six weeks or 20 weeks. You have no control over that, right? But when you grab the frame and you frame up that two-week time period as laughable, that they need a pro bono um, uh, investment banker to help them out, it frames them in the weak position, right? And now the only way she can get frame control back is to admit, yes, we can do better. Okay, so I got frame control and then the only way she could get any power back, the most powerful woman I've ever met is to say, you're right, it's ludicrous, we'll make it happen on time and then she got, then I let her have the frame back. Does that make sense to you in terms mm. of doing things socially and with fun and, like, and in fact most, sorry Susie, I get carried away when I hear this stuff, but most people pay me you know, in deals to control the social situation. The information is always the same. I can't change that, right? But to make it fun and exciting and add humor, control the amount of time when things happen, make sure things don't become too analytical, right? And they stay on the relationship level. That's what I get paid an enormous amount of money for. And so you're right. It has to be fun. And if you're the person creating that fun environment, it's incredibly, high status, all right, and that's important.
0: One of the great things uh, in the book, for those of you listening, is that there are the different scenarios that you've been in and explanations even of other people's pictures compared to yours, and you'll see the lightness and the humour in it uh, when you read those stories. You introduce us to a method uh, which I found really useful and I've already used, which is about how we present our big idea so that it's, differentiates itself from perhaps the uh, pitch of another. And it's a wonderful, wonderful formula that has three parts to it. Would you walk us through that?
1: Sure. So it's pretty funny because I see hundreds of pitches, right, and people will go on and on and on delivering information, okay, delivering information about the deal and explaining the product and explaining the deal. And it's, it's discombobulating because I don't know what the big idea is. Okay, so I understand you have a product and it has a certain value proposition, and you sell it to some kind of customers. And but what's the big idea here? You know, if you're sitting around with your buddies, as I might mine, you know, having a glass of wine, or my case, drinking a Coors Light, and and a friend you haven't seen for a couple years says, "Susie, what are you working on?" Right? You're not going to say, "Hey, look, you know, here's the pro forma, here's the product performance, um, here's how many." Uh, um, how many spins our widget can do or where our our company is based and who our CFO is you're going to say all that stuff you're going to say John, so thank you so much for asking I have invented a wine that stays cold for five hours after you take the cork out and there are distributors all over the world who are interested in this And I've hired three salespeople and a CEO to run this company, and I'm making 100,000 units a month, and we are in 14 countries, and it's great because I have a 60% gross margin, and we're making a ton of money doing it, okay? That's the big idea, all right? Now, as you said, there are some very cool ways to communicate the big idea. One of the easiest ways I've found right, is to talk about what is changing. What is changing that has opened up a market window? All right? um, so, I mean just going back to this silly wine idea, right? So, so um, what's changing is that um, today it is so much easier to market your wine products on the Internet. There's all kinds of channels to do it, right? Another thing that is changing is the demand for innovative wine products is, is much higher than it was even a year ago, okay? And the cost of manufacturing for my product just in the last six months has dropped 50%. So these three things are drivers of change, and they've opened up a window of opportunity. They've opened up a window of opportunity that I'm taking advantage of. Now the truth is there's a couple other people who do something similar and they're walking through the window of opportunity with me and as the window closes because we get good at selling our products and become well known the window will close behind us and there will be three or four of us competing in the market but we have a very large niche that we are um, better than anyone else in the way we do it okay so because the market is changing a window has opened we have capitalized in this, and we're stepping through the window, and on the other side, in a greenfield market, as the window closes behind us, we can dominate in our niche. And this is what's making this a fantastic opportunity. Right? So when you combine the big idea with the three moving market forces and the open closing market window, it's incredibly powerful to explain to someone. What you have, right, and why now, right? So, if I can just spend thirty seconds on that, which I know I can, because I'm the one talking right now, nobody's interrupting me. So, um, but what's the burning question in every buyer's, or investors, or stakeholders' mind is why do this now? Why didn't this happen two years ago? Why shouldn't I just wait around? Why should I just wait around see how it works out and invest in it two years from now, right? Because there has to be a why now. A market opportunity is open. It's not going to be open for very long because we're leveraging some forces that only we have insight on because we're so close to it. We're getting an unfair competitive advantage in a new world order, right? And that is a beautiful way of framing
0: up what you have. Very good. We're getting quite a few questions from listeners, which is great. I want to address those in just a second. Uh, But just generally, because we've had it asked a few times, are there examples of the things we're talking about in the book? Absolutely. You will know when you're in an alpha or beta state, you will know how to construct an argument that includes the economic, the social and the technological forces. So lots of great examples of where it deals and um, things that you can, you know, just transpose over your own situation. Before we go ahead and ask, um, answer some of the questions we've had come in, I want to talk about attention because obviously if you're doing a pitch, it sort of seems obvious, but we need to get and keep attention throughout the presentation. And you give an example in the book of comedian Jerry Seinfeld, who I'm pretty sure everyone here on the call will know. What does he know about keeping attention that we seem to not know when we're going into pitch? So,
1: Susie, I love you, and I want to do more stuff with you because you pick out stuff that most other people (laughs) miss. All right? So I don't know. We're like 18,000 miles apart, but I'm going to try and hug you right now. Um, Okay, got it. (laughs) Okay. So, So check this out. Attention is the fundamental issue here. Everything that I've talked about today, right? From not making the crack brain afraid of you, to getting frame control, to not stepping in beta traps, right, to to qualifying the other person, it's all to, to building your own status, to being the alpha. It all boils down to one thing. It's attention. Because if you walk into a room, right, and Warren Buffett was there and he said, aliens were said to him, you know, we're going to blow up the planet Earth unless you pay attention to Susie for the next four hours. And I mean pay attention. You would sell anything to him. A squirrel back scratcher. He'd invest in it, right? If you can talk about something long enough and show people enough information and they're actually paying attention, Right? you will sell what you have no matter what it is every product gets sold every deal gets invested in when there's enough attention put on it the problem is you won't get four hours you won't get two hours you won't get one hour the span of human attention might be 20 minutes might be 20 minutes you I don't know how good you are listening to this For you, the span of a human attention in your presentations might be two minutes, all right? I'm as good as it gets. I'm as good as it gets, and I get about 20 minutes before people start burning out, all right? And so how long do you get? I don't know. So one thing that struck me is um, uh, I heard, as you said, Jerry Seinfeld um, had a great uh, DVD about producing comedy. And he says, you know, when he puts together a new act. He only has one or two minutes of material, right? He says, this is fascinating. I walk out on stage in the middle of nowhere, say, you know, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I go on stage, everybody, yeah, Jerry Seinfeld, right? I get to say just about anything for two minutes, and people laugh and they love me. In the third minute, if I'm not funny, I lose their attention. I'm Jerry Seinfeld. I'm the biggest comedian in the world, maybe one of the biggest known brands in the world, and I only get two minutes of buy time before I actually have to be funny. So this is what I ask you, and you know, this is why it's worth paying attention to the pitch, because if Jerry Seinfeld gets a few minutes, if Orrin clap. gets a few minutes before people start timing out, right, it shows you how critical it is that You have to have material and social and frame control and status in order to keep their attention for at least 20 minutes is probably the most you get.
0: Very good. Let's go ahead and have a look at some of these questions. Thank you all for the great, great questions. We'll move them through them pretty quickly so we can get as many as we can answered in the short time we have available. Joanne is asking, she's a consultant and she always agrees uh, to work via proposals. So is there a different way for her to take back the alpha position while still agreeing to provide a proposal?
1: Sure. Sure, there absolutely is. Um, um, so so when someone says, hey, I like what you're saying, right, why don't you send me over a proposal, okay? Um, I think at that point, for me, i will say, I'd be glad to do, you know, prepare a proposal for you, right? But I want to hear you say, I want to hear you say, Oren, I love you and we want to do this deal. As long as the terms and all the details, um, foot right? Then we're in. Okay. There's no sense for us shooting around proposals, right? Unless A, we like each other. B, we like the basic terms. Okay. And C, we can just talk to each other and say, Hey, I want to do this. Let's, let's figure out a way to do it together. Right. And so some people say, Hey, that sounds good, but the words are important. I, so I'll say to someone, you've got to tell me, Orin, I love you and I want to do this together. And they'll say, yeah, Oren, uh, we like you a lot, and we should probably do this. No! Tell me, I love you, and we want to do this together. Until I hear that, I can't advance to go do a bunch of work. I'm not a beta, all right? I'm an alpha, you can use those words. And an alpha doesn't run around for hours and hours creating proposals, so you guys can, let's figure out if we are right for each other, or right for each other, then we'll each do some work, right? And I think that's the, that's the easiest way to get in and handle that stuff.
0: I think our uh, talk of alpha has uh, got the, um, the hair on the back of the necks of some of our alpha males who are listening. <laughs> Up (laughs) And the questions that I'm seeing are, is all that alpha behavior going to just cause a dysfunctional relationship and offend the other person? How do we play the alpha-beta game and maintain relationships and not come across as overly arrogant?
1: Okay, so look, I am coming across as overly arrogant for two reasons, okay? I can do this with a smile, okay? What I'm giving you is the construct, because I don't want you guys to detect, I'm not, I don't want you to detect softness in the construct, okay? This is the hard functional construct. These are the words you have to communicate, all right? But you have to also find a social way to do it. So let me redo what we just talked about, right? Susie this is great that we're actually thinking about doing business together right I wanted to work with you for a long time that first webinar we did was very cool I tried to give you a hug from 18,000 miles away I think you got it but I'm not sure so you know I would love to spend my Saturday sitting inside in a dark room while everyone else is outside having fun making you a proposal to look at but of course you know that's silly what you gotta tell me right is hey, Orin, I love you. We're going to do this deal together. It's worth your time putting together a proposal. And if you tell me that, then I'll invest the time. But we got to have that relationship to work from. Okay. So is that fair? Should we do it that way? Right? So that's the way you really. And that's that's not alpha, and that's not over the top. The reason that I'm giving you guys this material in such a, a somber tone is I want you to have the construct, right? Once you understand the construct, then you're going to overlay the social side of it, and that you can all do naturally. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And talking about construct, Megan's question um, is just that, and I know that the answer is yes, but I'm going to let you answer it, and that is, is successful pitching more about the method and the practice, or is it just mindset?
1: It is, okay, that's a great question. So lots of people ask me to speak, okay? And I say, I want you to understand I'm not a motivational speaker. I don't care if you're depressed. I don't care. That's not my job is to fix how you feel, all right? My job is to give you tools so that when you walk into a room and you show people what you have, you don't get to a point where you say, okay, okay. That's all I have. And they go, thank you, Susie, for presenting, but um, uh, we'll let you know, okay? We'll call you. That's horrible. So what I want to do is give you the tools in those pitching environments so you can have some frame control and you can manage the behaviors of the other people. So they're good behaviors and not bad behaviors. So almost none of it is mindset. It's all method and tools. And I'll spend another 30 seconds on that. Although I sound pretty good now, it wasn't always this way, right? If I was a natural, I would not have studied this stuff. I would not have hired cognitive psychologists. I wouldn't have spent 10,000 hours at night researching this stuff. I'm a geek. I need a blueprint. I have a copy of the book that I carry around with me. And I know, oh my God, I'm going in this situation. I need to look at page 169. It's my blueprint. This is not what I know how to do. I have to look at the book myself to remember what to do. These are techniques and these are methods that are effective um, and you can do them with almost any mindset, positive, negative, happy, depressed, or somewhere in between. Very good.
0: We have a couple more questions, a couple of announcements, and we're going to send everyone on their way. Um, We are going to give you also Oren's website details and where you can find him uh, for follow-up. Very quickly, Colin um, says that a lot of his company's new business comes from client requests for proposals. Uh, Do you have a suggestion for countering the classic beta without being cut from the short list immediately? I think we've answered that, right?
1: You know, I think If somebody wants to contact me independently and we talk about RFPs, it's very tricky. It's more than we can do here in a minute, okay, because a request for proposal, I mean, that is a beta trap, right? And it's a very, very good one, and there's ways to get around it, but it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation, you know, in the time we have.
0: Okay. All right. Well, well, let's leave that one. Uh, thank you, Colin, uh, for the question. Um, we'll see if there's another way that we can get that answered for you. But I would certainly recommend the book because it's going to give you a whole lot of um, ideas. Um, Kim's waiting on a large chain of hotels to get back to her about on selling her products. Obviously, they've got control of the frame at the moment. How does she get it back?
1: So, so sorry, repeat it again.
0: Kim is waiting on a large hotel chain to get back to her about distributing her product. So yes. they're totally in control here. How does she get control back?
1: You have to get them reacting to you, okay? You have to get them reacting to you. So anything that gets a reaction, right? So I think what you, for me, not knowing a lot about the situation, this is what I would do, right? I would say, I'm going to give you an exclusive for the next seven days, and after that, I'm opening it up to Marriott, Holiday Inn, Four Seasons, The Regent, Embassy Suites, Comfort Inn and Suites, and seven other independents, okay? And the exclusive will be blown. So you've got to use a time constraint, right? Now, the difference between a time constraint and what a car salesman might do is you, it's authentic. Okay? You give people enough time. And that's another one that might be a good blog post or a follow-up conversation. But you have got to get them reacting to you. You've got to put a time constraint on your offer, okay, and you've got to, and, and you've got to create a competitive threat. But if that's not appropriate, you've got to do something that gets frame control back. They have to be reacting to you. Okay.
0: Very good. We're going to do a couple of quick announcements and we're going to come back for some closing comments and we're just going to have a look at that neediness idea again. Um, I just want to let people know that our next book for lunch author is Joseph Michelli. He's the author of the book called The Zappos Experience. And if you're not um, familiar with Zappos, the online retailer that recently got bought by Amazon for a squillion dollars, um, they are very well known for their customer service and creating an amazing experience for their customers. So we're going to be looking at the primary leadership principles and core values that they use to enhance the customer experience. Very much looking forward to that one. That is next month on the 19th of April and registrations are now open. Uh, finally, I just want to let you know, as we uh, close up today, uh, you'll get the opportunity to request a free trial of GoToWebinar, the platform we've been using. Um, and then in a couple of hours, you're going to get a link to listen back to today's webinar because I know we've covered a lot uh, and we want to give you the opportunity to go back and have a re-listen to that. Just as we close up, um, firstly, I want to thank Oren for joining us. Um, and just in closing, whatever you would like to say, but I thought it would be... Uh, great to um, just let people know the three ways that we eradicate neediness because I think that um, that's one of the things that I think still holds us back. We need the deal where it might be a small business, we really need that client. So, so how do we eradicate neediness and close us up for the day? Aaron?
1: So the first way to eradicate neediness is to have a real time constraint okay, that at least you say, guys, um, let's get started, okay, let's get started, because we, um, I have about an hour to spend with you, then I have to go, all right, so that's number one, all right, the time constraint, number two, is you have to eliminate what I call one deal you have to eliminate your desire for that deal, you just have to be there to chop wood, carry water, just do good work in the meeting, right? You have to eliminate any desire for that particular deal to actually happen, right? You just gotta be there, do your best, leave with poise and serenity within a time constraint, right? So, while you're there, if you do these two things, right? You know when you're gonna withdraw within a time constraint, you know you don't need this particular deal. You're going to do the best you can. Chop wood, carry water, finish up with poise and grace. Okay? Then that leaves you free to be excellent in the presence of the people you're presenting to. It allows you to be social and humorous and fun and to take risks okay? and not have to react to other people and say, no, I'm not going to answer that. But we're going to talk about it later, right? So, so a time constraint, so you know when you're actually going to withdraw. You're not going to stay overstay your welcome. And they know they're going to lose you at a certain point because of time, right? No desire. And then be free to be excellent. Be the greatest, fun, social, no-pressure presenter that you can be. And those are the ways that um, neediness will be eradicated from your life.
0: Very good. Aaron. thank you so much for your time. The book is Pitch Anything, an innovative method for presenting, persuading and winning the deal. We've organised with Booktopia, one of Australia's online booksellers, to make that available at a slight discount. And as I said, you know, my partner is a great negotiator, really great pitcher, and I just kept reading bits of the book uh, out to him and he's like, okay, well, when you're done with it, I want to read it. So um, I highly recommend it. Aaron, and thank you for joining us. To all of you, thank you for joining us from all parts of Australia on behalf of the Australian Business Women's Network Uh, we want to thank you for being here and look forward to welcoming you back we're a membership based organization and um, on our website the URL for which you'll find on the site uh, is access to over 80 different webinars just like these available for you on demand thank you so much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day thanks again Thanks for joining us for Booked for Lunch interviews with the world's leading business book authors and thinkers. Book for Lunch is presented by the Australian Business Women's Network. For more interviews and details of upcoming Book for Lunch webinars, visit our website at www.abn.org.au.